before our Father this morning. Thou lovely source of true delight, whom I unseen adore, unveil thy beauties to my sight, that I might love thee more. Oh, that I might love thee more. Father, we, we come this morning. You are the source of our true delight. And we need you to unveil, to reveal to our hearts and our minds the truth of who you are. Many of us in this room have heard many things about you and know many things about you. But the thing we most need is to believe what's true and to live according to what's true. To understand the, the value system and the perspective that you have and to allow that to affect all that we do and say and all that we are. And so we come here this morning with the need for you to reveal your beauties to our sight so that we can love you more. We need you to do that this morning. We ask that you use your word, that you would use me as your messenger, that your spirit would take the truth of your word and apply it to each of our lives and that we would become more like you and that the world would see who you are through your people. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Uh, you can open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 13. Uh, I uh, have the privilege of, of this week and next week um, getting a chance to teach. And, and what I intended originally of being uh, two messages, one from 13 and one from chapter 14, is actually turning out to be two messages from chapter 13, as I realized that uh, there's a lot more here. And so this week we're going to look at it from one angle, and then next week we'll continue from that. We're going to look at this passage in, in Genesis related to to Abraham and, the, and another account of him. And uh, there is a perspective we're going to take on this, as indeed the, a lot of the passages as you read through the the account of Abraham appears to be a kind of test, a kind of situation which God uses to grow Abraham, Abram in this case, in his faith. And so let's read the chapter 1 through 18. So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife, and all that he had, and lot with him into the Negev. Now Abram was very rich in livestock, and silver, and in gold. And he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he had made an altar at first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. And Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together. For their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abraham's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At, the, at that time, the Canaanites and Perizzites were dwelling in the land. Then Abram said to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right. Or if you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zor. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. 
The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, Lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land that you see I will give to you, and to your offspring forever I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron. And there he built an altar to the Lord. Like I said, the, the perspective, I think, the, the right perspective or a helpful one as we look at this passage, indeed a lot of the different accounts in the, the narrative of Abraham, we've is to see it as a test, to see it as a situation which God uses circumstances, sometimes that God calls him into, sometimes circumstances like this one are just the result of living in a fallen world and living in a place that's not sufficient. These circumstances provide a kind of test for Abraham to grow in his faith. That God intends to use the circumstance to help produce faith, to help him to respond rightly and to learn what it means to respond in faith as it relates to the situation that he finds himself. So God is a test narrative here that we see that we're reading. It's a a narrative where we can learn about what faith looks like in action. And a test is, is certainly as much about a process as it is about the product. And God's intention is to do both in us, to help us work in the midst of a process as well as to grow us into the kind of people who respond rightly in faith. Because we need that. We need that kind of growth and instruction. A number of years ago when I was in, uh, I was on staff with Campus Crusade for Christ at the University of Nebraska, uh, one of the things I, I worked with students, and in one of the Bible studies that I worked with, there, was, there were two guys that had formerly been on the, te- on, the ba- on the football team. Both of them were defensive linemen. One guy was named Jason and one was named Brian. Jason was six foot five, 290. Brian was about six foot three. He was a smaller of the two, went 280. They were both huge men in my Bible study. I enjoyed them, and I really liked the fact that they loved Jesus, and I felt comfortable with that. I enjoyed having them around me when we would spend time together. But Jason, in particular, and I would lift weights together. And if you can imagine Jason, 6'5", me, 5'6", and about 150 pounds separated us in terms of weight, I enjoyed going into the weight room with Jason and, and working out with him. And, of course, we could, you know, we could pretty much do whatever we wanted, and I would feel safe, and guys would, you know, remove themselves from certain lifts and such, and I liked that. But more than that, Jason would actually knew what he was doing in the weight room, and you could tell that, and he would help me in the process. He would instruct me as we would lift. And one of the things that he informed me early on as we would lift is that he said, you know what, you're not as strong as you think you are. The problem is that you're lifting too much weight and you're doing it in the wrong way. And in the end, you're going to hurt yourself. And he helped me learn how the right way, the right form, the correct movement, if you will, to lift weight. I found I was less strong than I thought. But I learned a little bit about the right movement in doing that. And I learned from Jason that, um, that the essential to the goal of getting stronger was right movement, it was correct form. And that cheating actually would do more harm to me. That cheating was trusting in my body in ways that I shouldn't. And cheating ultimately did not help me at all. And as that illustration relates to our situation, what God is in the business of, what he wants to do in our lives as our trainer, as our instructor, is learn what right form is. What does it mean to truly trust him? Because cheating in relation to this is to trust in anything else, in any other way, 
besides him. That God, what he wants to do in our lives is to help us to learn. And what will cause us to grow most is to learn what it means to trust him and his promises in and, in and through all the circumstances of our lives. Because in and through all of those things, we know that God is, is doing that. He is causing us to learn to trust him. And indeed, of course, as human beings, as sinful and failing, we look to lots of other things and our life is spent in learning that everything else will not completely satisfy. Everything else cannot be trusted, but there's only one who can be trusted, and that is God. And this picture for us, this narrative for us, will help give us some direction in understanding what it looks like to trust God. What I find helpful mostly in this situation is that it's, there's a subtlety to it. There's a kind of subtlety in understanding exactly what's happening. And there's certainly faith involved in the situation as, as Abraham seeks to resolve it. And, and as he makes that decision, there's a faithfulness and a faithlessness that can be expressed in his decision. But it's not so clear exactly what he should do in this situation. And I think the situation, what we find here, is more reflective of our lives. It's more reflected oftentimes of the subtlety of the situations in which we find ourselves, where there's not a clear, obvious choice between one or the other. There's not overt evil versus obvious good in many of the situations and choices in our lives that we have to make. There's not... In a situation, you know, a picture of a devil over one side and an angel or a picture of Jesus over the other. It's just not clear. And so we have to navigate that territory. We have to navigate those test narratives of our lives by faith, trusting God. And we see a picture in here of how do we enter into these more subtle situations and try to find the right response. What does it look like to, by faith, enter into situations where the outcome or the decision to be made is not quite so clear? It's not quite so obvious. And certainly in the situation, we're going to find that there's a, a faithful and a faithless response. There's a way to do it right and a way to do it wrong. As we look at it, we're going to find out what does it mean? What does it look like to be more faith-filled in our responses? Because the kinds of situations that we have, we have to respond in the same way. The kinds of situations we find ourselves are decisions that we have to make, choices we have to make regarding jobs and careers and degrees spouses and houses that we decide, schools, cars, cell phones, churches, friends, what we do on a Friday night, what we do with our lives, many decisions that we have to make, both large and small, and all of them will lead us in a direction. All of them be led in some way, either by faith in God and his sufficiency or faith and trust ultimately in ourselves. And through all these test narratives of our lives, what God wants to do in us is to grow faith. Faith not in ourselves, not in external circumstances, but ultimately faith in him. And to teach us, instruct us what right movement looks like. What does it mean to trust him completely? Because oftentimes we find that we're not exactly sure and we find ourselves, oh wait, I'm trusting in other things as opposed to God. So the question I want to ask is, how is it that we navigate the test narratives of our lives, those situations that aren't so clear sometimes, but how do we do that by faith? What's it look like for us? And as we look at this account, there's some things that we can learn. The main thing I want, actually there's two things. First, there's a contrast that the text sets up for us, a contrast between the faith of Abraham I would say the faithlessness of Lot. And so the two are set side by side. And the text clearly wants us to see them. As we look at them together, we can see a picture of what faith looks like and what faithlessness looks like. And then I want to pull out a couple of principles for us that I think will help provide a foundation 
in making decisions and being and living a faithful kind of life. First of all, by way of overview, if you're familiar with this text, the Abraham, the story of him, it starts in chapter 12. It moves on to roughly chapter 25 where we find that at that point that he, he dies. Um, in chapter 12, it's the first introduction. We have that, that God comes to Abraham. Abram at this time, his name is changed. I'm going to refer to him as Abraham. But he comes to Abram and he calls him out of his land. He calls him from his people. And he calls him to a place that God will show him. And it seems like a crazy kind of call, but Abraham obeys. That in the situation that he, he responds to God in obedience and he leaves. He leaves the country that he knows in Haran and he moves on. And we find him in chapter 12 where he lands in the, the land of Canaan here in Bethel. And there's a, an altar that he establishes. And so we see that Abraham responds in faith to God in obedience. And God in return gives him a promise. It's a promise that certainly is fulfilled ultimately in the rest of scripture. But it's a promise to him. It's a promise that says you'll have offspring. And ultimately from this offspring will come a great nation. And it's a promise of a land. It's a place that you will dwell and place that you will be. And it's a promise of a blessing that will come to you. And a blessing that will come through you to all the nations of the earth. And so the promise comes as a result of Abraham's obedience, as a result of his faith. But then later on in chapter 12, there's a failure that we see. There's a famine that's in the land. And Abraham leaves the land that God had called him to. And he goes down to Egypt. Uh, it seems to be just self-preservation there. And there he is, he's able to sustain himself. However, in that place, it seems that his interests are more for himself than anyone else. And if you've read that account, it's a strange kind of one where he, his wife is beautiful. And he says, tell them that I'm your brother, not your husband. And as a result, the Pharaoh takes her into his harem. And, and there's a judgment that comes upon those people. And then eventually they are expelled from the land. And then we move into chapter 13. And in chapter 13, at the very opening stages of 13, there's a kind of repentance, it seems. Because in that failure, we see that, that, that Abraham is not looking to God. He's not trusting in him. He's trusting in his own ability to deal with his circumstances. But as we move into chapter 13, what's interesting of the chapter is that it's bracketed. It's bracketed by an image. It's bracketed by an image of an altar. At the opening of chapter 13, Abraham leaves Egypt. He doesn't have anywhere else to go. And where does he go? But he comes back to the altar he had built before. He comes back and it says that he called on the name of the Lord there. That he came to God and responds to him. And there's a picture of repentance that we have as he, as he returns to that altar to worship God. And so it opens with this repentance, this scene, as Abraham returns to this altar he's built. And the, and the chapter ends where he is in another location just south in, in Hebron, and there he has established another altar of worship to God. And so the, 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 the chapter begins and ends with a place of worship, and we see that, so this is bracketed by worship. But the situation that arises in the middle here in chapter, or verses 5 through 7, it's an interesting one, right? And you can understand how it worked. They're, they're both in the land. They, it tells at the beginning of the chapter that both of them have a lot of possessions. Their flocks and their herds are huge. They have lots of gold. They have lots of silver. silver. But as they return to this land, they're sharing the land, the text tells us, with the Canaanites and the Perizzites. And indeed, they have a large entourage, and there's many uh, the livestock is, is rather large that they have. And of course, they need to feed them. They need to water them. And it, it turns out that as they return to this land, it seems that it's not sufficient to sustain both of them. 
that uh, the flocks and the herds, the blessing that God has given them, uh, that is brought to them, that the land isn't sufficient to sustain it. And so you can imagine this, right? The herdsmen that are taking care of their individual livestock, and they find that the the grass is, there's not enough grass or pasture land to feed them. There's not enough water to water them. And so they begin to fight, and there's competition over these two groups to try to, to take care of their, their assets, right? They're trying to keep them. And so there's strife and there's competition that, that results as a, as a result of this situation. Merely as a result of scarcity. There's not enough. And so Abraham looks at exactly the outcome here and he sees that it's not sufficient. He understands the direction they're going to go here. This isn't a good one for the family. It's not, it's not a good direction. So he sits down and he has, a, he has a plan that he offers to Lot, his nephew, He says, okay, you go one direction and I'll go the other direction. We need to divide here for the sake of peace. We need to to remain peaceful in our relationship with another. So we need to separate. And he does an amazing thing as the elder, as the the, uh, patriarch of the clan. He gives Lot the first choice. And he says, okay, you choose one direction and I'll go the other. And you get this picture that they're up on a hill and they're looking out around the land. And they look out and he says, okay, you choose And then I'll choose the other. Wherever you go, I'll go the other direction. And we see that Lot chooses the Jordan River Valley. And we're told that it's it's near Sodom. We're also told that God's going to destroy Sodom. We're also told that it's a wicked place. So we have Lot choosing this fertile river valley as a place that he would take. And we have Abram who has taken the land that God had promised him in in Canaan there. And then we have in verses 14 through 18, we have a, a promise that God gives. After they separate, there's a reformulation, a reiteration of the promise to Abraham that God says you're going to have offspring and you're going to have a land. This is the land. Look around. This is the land that I'm, gonna, I'm going to give to you. And the question that, that you might have already asked or you might ask at some point along this road is, how is it that we know this is a test narrative? How is it that we know that that God is even pleased with the outcome of the situation? Faith is nowhere mentioned in here. The word faith is not present in this account. So how do we know that this is something that God is doing to test him? And how do we know that God is pleased with the outcome? Well, I think verses 14 through 16 really tell us that. What's interesting in all the Abraham, the narrative, is that whenever... Abraham does something that pleases God. Whenever Abraham acts in faith, what you find is God responding to that faith with, with a reiteration of the promise that he had given him from the beginning. It's like comes, God, God comes to him and says, you've done well, and I want to remind you again. In fact, I want to amplify the promise I've given you in the past. At the faith that you have exhibited, I'm going to remind you of what I'm going to do. And so this reminds us, this demonstrates for us that this, God is pleased with the faith that Abraham exercises in this situation. And then he calls Abraham to lift his eyes up and to look and to see the land that God will give him. The land that he would not receive, but the land that his people would have based upon a promise. And then we have the end of the chapter where he settles here in Hebron and then builds an altar there. Well, the first thing I want to do is I've kind of walked through that is that the text, like I said, sets up a kind of contrast. There's an important contrast between two men and two ways of seeing, between Abraham and between Lot. 
That both of them are in the midst of the same situation. Both of them are struggling with the same reality of scarcity. There's not enough grass. There's not enough water to take care of their livestock. But each of them approach the situation from completely different vantage points. The way they see and the things that they look at are different. In the end, we have them going different directions geographically. The different direction geographically illustrates for us a different direction spiritually that they go. And as we set them in contrast, there's some things that will come by relief that will separate from us to see what does it look like to live in faith and then what does it look like to live by sight? What does it look like to live based upon faith in ourselves? And I want to walk through just a few comparisons or contrasts between them that are in the text. And I'll walk through a few and then I'm going to pull out a couple of principles that I think will help us as we think about what's it mean to navigate these narratives in our lives, the decisions in our lives where faith needs to be exercised, faith in God. First of all, in this contrast, we see that Abraham had a status or he had privilege, but he didn't use it. That in the situation where there's a choice to be made between the land that they would go to, he is the patriarch of the clan, had every right to, to establish the choice that he would choose first and it would make all the sense in the world and Lot would have understood that he would have the second choice and that Abraham would have the first. But rather, Abraham relinquished his right. That he saw that something else was more important than that he would just gain the advantage. And we see a kind of generosity and selfishness here that comes as a result. That for him, there was something more important than just gaining an advantage. But for Lot, on the other hand, we see that his interests were, were in getting an advantage. As he looks out over the land, that his interests were to get an advantage even to the disadvantage of his uncle, to his older, his elder, the, um, the, the greater of the two here, that he takes advantage of him in this situation. The other thing has to do with what they're looking at. It's interesting the text tells us that they both lift up their eyes. In verse 10, we see that Lot lifted up his eyes and he saw the Jordan Valley that was well watered like the garden of the Lord. That what he looks at with his physical eyes and what he sees is the material world. And his interests and his decisions are based purely and completely upon that. That he sought sufficiency in his possessions. He, thought he sought material prosperity even over spiritual purity. That even as he understood the context, the situation where that valley was, and the text tells us that there was Sodom that was not far off, that he chooses this material prosperity over spiritual purity, and that what he sees is, is merely with his own physical eyes. But what Abraham sees, God asks him to lift his eyes as well in verse 14. Lift up your eyes and look at this place. And he sees what God has provided for him. He, see, he sees the sufficiency of God. He recognizes that no matter what it looks like, what God has given me is a good place. That what God has given me is a place that will be sufficient for all the blessing that he has for all of my livestock. It might not look exactly like the Jordan Valley that I would like, but it is sufficient for me what God provides. And he recognizes that God would be the one that would take care of him. He wanted something more than just what his physical eyes could see, but what his eyes and through eyes of faith, he saw what God would give him. We see that Lot was willing to compromise for spiritual gain. He was willing to give up something. The spiritual climate of Sodom is well known, would have been well known to him as well. He's willing to compromise because of what appeared to be a gain that he could have materially and physically and financially. Abraham, on the other hand, sought security in the promises of God. He grounded himself in what God had said it's interesting that God had promised a land, he had promised a good land, but if you think about the land, the land had already failed him twice. 
the land in chapter 12, there was a severe famine, so much so that they had to leave. And then here we have their scarcity in the land, that the place itself can't sustain them. And so you might ask, did, did Abraham wonder if this land is such a good place after all? If there's famine and if there's scarcity here, not enough to, to uphold both of them, is this really a good place? But we see that he didn't just look upon the circumstances, but he trusted that God and what God would give would be sufficient. In the end, you see that Lot journeyed east and that Abraham stayed in the land of Canaan there on the west of Jordan. In the end, we see that Lot trusted in sight. He trusted what, it, what, what his physical eyes could see where Abraham trusted in what his spiritual eyes could see. He trusted by faith in what God had already said and had trusted himself to him. In terms of the progression of their lives, it's interesting. East is not a good direction to go. Throughout scripture, you find that east is not just a geographical term, but it's one that also carries a symbolic spiritual reality. As he moved that direction, he wasn't just moving towards Fertile River Valley. He was moving closer and closer to Sodom. And the progression of Lot's life, you will find, it's interesting, that he sets up in this passage with his tents near Sodom, that he's there close by. If you turn a page over in chapter 14, you'll find him dwelling in Sodom, that he's living there. If you turn a few chapters over in chapter 19, you'll find that he's not just in Sodom, that, that Lot is at the city gates, that he is an elder there, and that he is one of the rulers, if you will, of this wicked city. And then in that chapter, as God promises to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, and the angels come to try to remove them and to protect them from the city, you find later on in that chapter 19 that it takes nothing less than physical exertion to get him and his family out of the city. That they have become so enmeshed and embedded in the culture and the spiritual climate there that even though destruction was coming, they did not want to leave. And so we see the spiritual progression there as he moves near, not just the river valley, but he moves near the spiritual climate of Sodom and he's drawn into it. And his whole mind and the way he was thinking was, was bound up in that. And he made this place his home, the place that would be ultimately destroyed. Whereas Abraham, on the other hand, was dwelling in a land as a nomad. He was dwelling in a land. It was a land it was good because God had said it was good. It was a land that was his because God said it would be his. It was a land that he never saw to be his ultimately. It was a land, though, that he trusted in God. In the end, he had a place, something that was lasting, whereas Lot, on the other hand, the land that he had, the land that he acquired was one that would ultimately be destroyed. And as one writer put it, in the end, as we see one man by faith and one man through sight, living and making decisions and moving in certain directions, in the end we have Abraham being a father of the faithful. He is a picture for us. He is a model, certainly a failure, but he is a model also of faithfulness to a God and God's faithfulness to him. Whereas on the other hand, we have that Lot, he was the father of all who were possessed by their possessions. He was the father of all who would be possessed by their possessions, that he sought after what only he could have. And so as we look at these situations, we look at the contrast between the two men, what they looked at, what they saw, what they lived for, the faith and where they placed their faith, we see by relief, by, by distance of the two, what faith looks like subtly and what faith doesn't look like. Faith in God and faith in our own abilities. We find the the permanency of the land and the place that Abraham would find himself and we find ultimately the destruction 
that Lot would find himself. As we compare these two, we can learn a few things about the foundation of what it looks like to navigate and to live in and through the different circumstances of our lives. What's it look like to live by faith? Where it's not quite so obvious, because every decision we make, large or small, does have an element of faith in God, or faith in ourselves, or faith in others. Question What does right movement look like? What does right form look like in these situations? And how do we grow to be people who have faith in God? Now, the bottom line is here, right, as we think about decisions that we all have to make where faith is necessary, there is no formula. There's no formula to come out with the exact right outcome, but we know that the bottom line, the baseline, the foundation that we have to start with is ultimately entrusting ourselves to God. So there's no formula, but there's a couple things I think that will provide the right foundation on which to begin to make these decisions, on which to begin to have faith, if you will. And the first one I think is helpful as we pull out of this is that decisions that are made of faith, decisions of faith stem from complete abandonment to the call and promises of God. That decisions that are made by faith to navigate this territory of our lives, the test narratives of our lives, to use our our little phrase here, require and are built upon and stem from and flow from complete abandonment to the call of God and the promises of God. You see, in this situation, a case could be made that Abraham sacrificed a great deal by turning over, by giving the opportunity to choose to his nephew, That in every right he had the choice to make uh, there, that he had the option to do that, and and Lot would have certainly understood it. And what he lost there was not just land, but his honor. In fact, he was disrespected by his nephew, that his own honor was at stake, that his own status was at stake, even as he gave him the option to do that as the head of the clan. But the fact in fact is that Abraham. Abraham had nothing, let me restate this, that the fact is that Abraham had nothing to lose because he had already given it all up. He had nothing to lose because there was nothing that he had to gain. He had already given it up. If you go back to chapter 12 and the opening of, of that account, you find that he had already relinquished his rights. He had already said, okay, God, if I'm going to follow you, if I'm going to obey you, I'm going to leave you everything behind. If I'm going to entrust myself to you to bless me, then I need to recognize it's not up to me, but it's up to you to sustain me in and through the blessing. He had nothing to lose. He had already abandoned himself completely to God. He had signed his life over to him, and he relinquished everything that he had, and he didn't trusted himself to him. Did he do it perfectly through his life? No, he did not. But here's an example. Here's a situation where he recognized and he realized, it's not mine anyway. That, yeah, this land might look better, but I've already entrusted myself to this God who is able. And if you think about the great blessing that he had now became a threat. All these livestock that he had without food and water, there was a great threat now that came upon that blessing. But he knew that God was even able to sustain the blessing that he gave him. He was able to uphold that and to provide for him. And this situation in which he gives Lot the option to choose was really just another step in the same direction. It's another step of faith. It's another step recognizing it's not up to me, it's up to him. It's another step moving and recognizing that I need to trust God. He had staked his claim not on his own ability and status, but on God's. And he could afford to be generous. He could afford to be gracious because he had already given it all up. He could afford because it wasn't him that was providing and whom he was trusting. It was God alone. And so as he sought for peace in this family so that it would not be torn apart by the strife, 
He did not assert his own right. He did not assert his own status for the good, for a higher good of something else. And this other, and so he was able to defer to him. Abandonment to the call and the promises of God is what each and every Christian lives on and lives by. If you turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 9, there's a number of different passages in the Gospels where we have a a picture of Christ's, uh, where he lays out discipleship and he lays out the cost, the cost of following him. To be clear, there's not a difference between a disciple and a Christian, but he wants to clarify that a Christian is a disciple and a disciple is one who's counted the the costs and follows him. And here he lays out these costs of what it means to truly abandon oneself completely to Christ if they're going to follow him. In chapter 9, verse 23, Jesus says, And he said to, he said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? And you see that Christ here, his words to them is that if you're going to follow after me, there's something that's required. You must take up your cross. And you might be familiar with the image. Of course, the man who has a cross in his hand is not going to live for too much longer. It's one who has laid down their life. I've been told it's something like this. To take up a cross is to relinquish our rights, our desires, our aspirations, to give those up in order to take on his. And we see that Abraham had already given it all up. The call for each one of us is to do the same thing on an ongoing basis. And Luke includes this little word in this text, daily, which is so helpful for us. It's so helpful for me to be reminded that this is not a one-time deal. We don't at one point in our lives relinquish all that we have and we are. We don't at one point in our lives deny ourselves and take up his cross. This is a daily process Counting the cost. It's a decision by decision process. As we come in contact with decisions that we have to make and situations we have to deal with and problems we have to solve, that we have to give it up again and say, okay, God, I trust myself. I entrust myself to you. And so this is an ongoing thing that we must, that we must do to abandon ourselves again and again to his ability, to his power, to his provision, to say, you're good. What you've called me to is a good place. An ongoing relinquishment of him. This is something we need to come to grips with, something we do on an ongoing basis. Because what I found in the decisions I make, they become most difficult when I have my own agenda in hand. They become most difficult when I want my outcome to take place. When I'm trying to protect or hang on to something that I don't want to let go. The decisions become much easier when I realize he's in charge. As we walk and as we walk in this reality of having abandoned, having submitted ourselves completely to Him, we're able to navigate these situations of our lives as we've reminded ourselves that we're not our own; we were bought with a price. As we realize there's nothing we have that hasn't been given to us, there's nothing we have that God won't or can't take away or give us more of, and that's not the point. This is a picture of what it means to live by faith. The foundation is submitting ourselves on an ongoing basis, abandoning ourselves to Him, His call his command in our lives, and entrusting ourselves to his promise to be able to take care of us. How do we navigate? By abandoning ourselves to him. The second thing we can pull out of this situation we can, we can find that is decisions that are oriented by faith, decisions that are oriented by completely submitting to God and his purposes in our lives, by nature will be counterculture. By nature will be seen from the world and everything outside of 
of those who understand and, and know the heart of God will seem foolish. They won't make any sense whatsoever. But they also kind of bring, they bring a kind of freedom for us. These kinds of decisions will be counterculture, but they bring a kind of freedom to us as we go there. As we navigate this test narrative of our lives, as we live according to the value system that God has, it is antithetical to the world. And so we shouldn't be surprised that it seems foolish to those around us. Again, back to the situation in, in Genesis chapter 13. By right and privilege, Abraham had the option to choose. It would have made all the sense in the world for him to do that. And if you were standing at that high point and looking off to the east, and you were to see, and you were a rancher or a herdsman or whatever, and you were to see that fertile river valley, you would say, that's the place I want to be. That's the place I want to take my flocks and my herds. That's where I want to go. It was an attractive place. It was the kind of place that any rancher or herdsman would, would long to have. And I was trying to think of probably not many ranchers or, or herdsmen in here, but what kind of situations in our lives or what, what would that, how would that relate to us? And I was thinking maybe a property owner or, or a, a rather a land developer would to see a piece of property and, and to give the option to someone else of a prime piece of property to develop. There's a number of kinds of circumstances that would, would give us the image of what's going on here, of what, he gave, of what he gave up and the foolishness of it. But the one that came to mind that hits close to home for me is I want you to picture walking into a kitchen with the smell of fresh chocolate chip cookies in the air. I want you to look at, there's, on the table there's a huge plate of cookies. But right in the middle of that plate is a huge cookie, and it's loaded with chocolate chips, and it's, and it's hot, and it's fresh, okay? You got that picture in mind? Are you getting hungry yet? On the, and so there's one big cookie, but then on the outside of the, of the plate, there's some other cookies there, and they look okay, but they're nothing compared to that cookie that's right there. And you're standing with one of your children, maybe, or one who is younger than you or a junior to you. And you give them the option to choose first which cookie to take. How foolish would that be? How foolish would that be to give someone else the option? Forget the cookie. Get back to the situation. That is foolish for him to do that. To give up the opportunity to choose such a rich terrain. But for him, for the sake of peace, this was what was necessary. To relinquish, to forego the opportunity. And what was most important to him was to do that. And as silly as it seemed, as much sense as it didn't make, this was what was necessary and this is what it means for him to live by faith. He gave up his own rights and entrusted himself to God and he trusted that God would provide adequately, as foolish as it might seem. And as we navigate the situations of our lives, we're going to come across decisions where faith in God and his promises very well will lead us in an opposite direction of what the world would encourage us to do. They will be exactly opposite of that. And to live by faith means to make that decision, though it doesn't make any sense to those around us. To live like that means that we learn to do that. We don't do that immediately. God teaches us and enables us to make those kinds of decisions. There was a, a situation, a, a, um, an example that struck me just recently. To give us an example of kind of the counterculture idea, I, Dr. Ken Canfield, when he was here a number of months ago and he spoke on fathering, in the paper there was an interview that he did, that the paper did with him about the importance of fathering. And he gives an example in there, which I found astounding. I think it's just, it's helpful for us to think about the countercultural way in which the, the values of God would lead us. And in this example, he suggested this. He suggested that two fathers, that taking a promotion 
which would require significant more time or energy at a period of time in his family's life when his children would need more time than he would have. He suggested that that should not be a foregone conclusion. That to choose a promotion over family in certain situations should not be just assumed, of course you'll take. And in fact, maybe the best answer, the best decision to make would be to turn down the promotion. You see, it turns, it's sideways, it's backwards. And only one with a higher perspective could look at that and say, wait a second here, I need to think about this. What is most important? And my point here isn't what should or shouldn't be done there as much as what does faith and how does faith in God, his promises, the way he allows us to see, enable us to even look at that situation differently. For one who has abandoned themselves to Christ and trusted themselves to him and his value system, there's a kind of freedom that comes in all the decisions that we make. As we look at that situation, that and many others, we're freed up to, to see it, not just through a lens of financial or a status or career path, but we're able to open our eyes and see beyond just the lush green valley of Jordan. We're able to, our eyes are able to be open and to see Sodom not far off, perhaps, in our situation. It's able to say, maybe that's not such a good idea because I see that's not, not far from there is a place that might not be so good for me spiritually, that might not be so good for my family, that might not be so good for me if I want to walk with God for the rest of my life. So I have to say no. And so there's a, a breadth of understanding. There's a freedom that comes as one has abandoned himself to Christ and trusted himself to him and his ability to take care of us and it looks foolish but there's a freedom that comes because we have trusted ourselves to him again there's no formula as we navigate the situations and the the narratives these situations of our lives there's no formula to do it but God calls us to trust in him to trust and to live by faith and it might look foolish but there's a freedom as we abandon ourselves to him that he will have the world might look, it might look funny to us, it might to them, but the reality is that God will provide for us. There's another angle on this I want to give in conclusion. You might ask the question, what, what would have Abraham done if Lot defers in the decision? We have that Lot chooses a decision, takes advantage of him, goes this direction in the rest of the story. We know that. But what would have happened? What would have Abraham done? What does it look like to live by faith in that kind of scenario? How would he respond in faith when, when Lot says, why don't you choose? Well, the answer is I don't know the answer. I don't know what Abraham would have done, but I know this for a fact. I know that the way that Abraham would have approached that decision would have been completely different by faith and approaching it by faith than the way Lot approached the decision. And the same is true for us. That faith enables us, as we entrust ourselves to God, enables us to look at the situations, to assess them, to see them in ways that only God can enable us to see them, to give us a kind of freedom to respond rightly and enable us to move into them and to trust God in the middle of them and to make a decision, move towards him. How do we respond in faith? There's, again, there's no answer here. There's no formula, but right movement, right direction for us, right form for us is that we trust God and God alone in and through these decisions. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're grateful that you are there, that you're real, that, that you've called us to yourself. And in abandoning ourselves to you, we are not leaving ourselves out to dry. We are not out of limb. We, 
we are in the most safe place possible. And I pray that you would, on a daily basis, call us to live and to think like that and to see the world around us and decisions in such a way that we would be honoring you in this situation, that you would be pleased with us as we respond in faith, not knowing maybe the exact outcome, but knowing that you're sufficient. Pray that as your people, we would live like this. Father, we have many needs in our congregation and, and many things to be thankful for. I want to say thank you and, and, and praise you for little Lucas Benjamin, Brandon, and, and Emily Edling's um, uh, little boy that was born this morning, uh, Stephen Wanda Haney's grandson. Pray that you would be with them as they raise him. Pray for many other needs, health needs, and circumstances in our church. Um, I pray, continue to pray for Mim McGrogan as she heals from her um, hip and, and pelvic break. I pray as well for Andrew Bodorf as he approaches this open heart surgery, this little six-year-old, and um, pray for Ron and Ellen as they walk through this, that you'd be with him. We pray, Father, as a church that we would be concerned about your gospel going forward and we would live it out in our lives. I thank you for Lauren Kish and her ministry in Rome this last year with Campus Crusade. And I pray that you would uh, use her sharing tonight as a way to open our eyes to what you're doing around the world and taking this gospel of your kingdom there. Pray for Jason and Kelly Ross as well with Navigators with Sean and Katie Stetson, Campus Crusade here, that you would be at work in their lives uh, using them to bring other students into your kingdom, into the knowledge, saving grace of Jesus Christ. Give us grace today to walk in faith. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'd like you to stand for the benediction. Benediction reminds us again of the, the immeasurable power that's at our, our expense that God provides for us. We see this as God's benediction. For his people. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church throughout all generations, forever and ever more. Amen. Mm -hmm.